Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you up here this morning. The past many weeks, I'm usually spending this time down in the uh, basement corner there with all of the youth, and uh, we've been having a pretty good time down there. Pretty good time. But we thought that uh, it was unfair to keep all of that to ourselves. So it's a great privilege for me to stand in front of you this morning and share a little bit. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Zach, my wife, Julie. And my sons, Eli and Jasper, we've lived in Beijing about two and a half years now. And uh, as I was thinking about what I might share this morning, I realized it might be best for me to start off by telling you a really quick personal story, because I think that might set the stage for some of the things that we might talk about. I have to apologize to the youth group. You, you guys have heard some of the things that I'm going to share this morning. Uh, but for those of you who don't know, even though I'm an American, uh, when I was younger, I, I didn't live in America. I lived in the Eastern European country of Hungary. And when I was 9, 10, 11 years old, my friends and I living in Hungary, we had a particular hobby that was not strictly legal. You see, my friends and I, when we lived in Hungary around the age of 10, 11, 12, we really liked to climb buildings. We thought that it was our responsibility to look for ways to get on top of almost every single building that we could see. And at that time, in Eastern Europe, Budapest was a great place if you wanted to be able to climb buildings. There are lots of older buildings that had interesting structures on the outside that made it easy to get on top. There was lots of construction sites with scaffolding. And my friends and I were very good at this. And so when I was 16 years old, my family moved back to America I kind of brought this love of climbing buildings with me. Now, after I graduated from high school, it was time to go to college. I decided to choose the University of Minnesota because I was interested in theater. They had a good theater program. And I remember one of the first times I was walking around the University of Minnesota campus, I had this strange realization. You see, most people realize that you have earned your right to graduate from college when you've taken all the tests, filled out all the exams, written all the papers. You can graduate. As I walked around campus that day, I realized I felt like I had an additional requirement. I was not going to feel like I had really graduated from college until I had climbed every single building on campus. And my freshman year, I attacked this requirement with great relish. Now, those of you who may also like to climb buildings, you know there's various kinds of buildings that you can climb. Some buildings, very easy. They, they literally have a fire escape or a ladder going up the outside. And if you like the challenge, you'll look at a building like this and you'll think, okay, I will climb you, but I don't have to enjoy it because there's no difficulty there. What you really want is to find a building with no fire escape on the outside, basically a building they don't want you to climb, but maybe you happen to know that there's a drain pipe coming down the side. And you happen to know you can get your fingers right behind that drain pipe, and in no time at all, you'll be standing on the roof of that building. So over the course of my four or five years of college, I climbed every single building on campus, except for one, the Humanities Fine Arts Building, or the HFA Building. This building must have been constructed by some kind of a mad genius who was bent on keeping boys off of it. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I walked around the outside of this building. There were no drain pipes of any kind. Water must have drained off through the middle by some kind of magical method that I don't even know about. And as I'm walking around this building for like the hundredth time this one particular day, lamenting the fact that I'm never going to graduate from college, suddenly I turn a corner and I see something that I swear 
I had never seen before. Growing right next to the building, there was a tree. And right near the point where the tree's branches start going off in different directions, this one particular branch was stretching directly toward the roof at about the same height. And the moment I noticed that, there was this little gust of wind that caused another branch to kind of go like this, as if the tree itself were saying, Zach, look at this. I immediately went to a hardware store. I purchased a long two-by-four and a coil of rope. I called my best friend at the time, Oscar. I said, Oscar, tonight we're going to climb HFA. That night at 10 o'clock, we stood at the foot of the tree. We had a two-man plan. One man on the ground, one man in the tree. Man in the tree lowers rope to man on the ground. Man on the ground ties the rope to the two-by-four. Man in the tree pulls the two-by-four up into the tree. Man on the ground joins man in the tree. Men in the tree take the two-by-four. They hold it straight up in the air, rigidly against the fork and the branch. They count to three, and ideally the two-by-four drops towards the roof and stays there. I was the man in the tree. I lowered the rope to Oscar. He tied the rope to the two-by-four. I pulled the two-by-four up into the tree. He joined me in the tree. We held the two-by-four against the fork. We counted to three. It dropped toward the roof, bounced on the roof one time, and it fell out of the tree. Oscar climbed back down. I lowered Oscar the rope. He tied the rope to the two-by-four. I pulled the two-by-four up into the tree. He joined me in the tree. We held the two-by-four against the fork in the tree. We counted to three. It dropped, bounced on the roof one time, fell out of the tree a second time. I angrily lowered the rope. Oscar, with great frustration, tied it to the two-by-four. I pulled it quickly up into the tree. He joined me in the tree. We held it against the fork. We counted one, two, three. It fell toward the roof. It bounced one time. And it stayed. The bridge. I took my hands and I pushed them down against the two by four, against the fork. I looked over at Oscar and I said, okay, Oscar. Go. (laughs) He laid down on the two by four, grasped it ahead of him and slowly began to pull himself forward inch by inch. And after what seemed like an eternity, although it was probably only a couple of minutes, he reached forward, he grabbed the roof, and he was standing on HFA. He turns around, he takes his hands, he presses them against the wood, he looks at me and he says, go. I lay down, and I slowly began to pull myself forward. And with every pull, the roof was getting wider and wider in my field of vision. This thing that I had been waiting for for four years and just as I was going to reach forward and grab the roof the two by four fell now they say when you're about to die everything slows way down but that isn't what happened to me for me it was almost like everything just froze I mean I saw the two by four fall away from my body all the way down to hit the ground far below me. But for some reason, I wasn't falling. I looked up and I suddenly realized what had happened. Oscar had leapt forward and he grabbed my wrist and I was literally just hanging there as he was hanging on above me. I finally came to my senses. I looked up. He had this horrified look on his face. I reached up. I grabbed his other arm and with a huge pull, suddenly we were both 
standing on the roof of HFA. And the next moments, we did everything that you might imagine we would do. We hugged each other. We gave each other some high fives. We ripped our shirts off where we had painted with body paint on our chests. Oscar and Zach rule. I'm not joking. We actually did that. <laughs> we took a giant pair of men's brief undergarments onto which we had spray painted Welcome, students, because we knew the next day there was an elementary school group arriving to watch a children's production in the theater, and we hung it over the front entrance so that they would be welcomed when they came. We took a couple more pictures. We high-fived each other a couple more times. We made our way over to the roof door, which, because we were standing on the outside, is unlocked from the outside, walked back down, walked back to our dorms, and we were fully and completely satisfied. Now, I share this story with you because as I was thinking about it, I realized I'm not sure if I would have had this experience if my parents did not choose at some point early in their lives to move from the United States to the country of Hungary. In fact, the more I think about it, the more I realize my parents and some of the sacrificial decisions that they have made allowed me to have the kind of life that I did. This is, this is true of a lot of the youth who are here today. The sacrificial, loving decisions that parents have made really impact the lives of their kids. And there's something about that idea of sacrificial love that really makes us happy. We like to hear about the idea of sacrificial love. It does something to us on the inside. I have the privilege every Friday afternoon of going down to one of the universities in Beijing and teaching a university course. And a number of months ago, a girl came up to me after the course, 20-year-old girl, asked me some questions about the class. I began asking her some questions. Turns out she's from a very small city in southern China where for as long as she can remember, her two parents, her two sisters, and her two sets of grandparents had saved every bit of money that they could so that when the time came, they could send this girl off to Beijing to go to college. If you meet practically any university student in the city, you can be guaranteed of two things. They are the brightest and best students that you might meet in this country. And probably somewhere else in this country, there's a family that has sacrificed a great deal out of love to be able to get them there. We like hearing about that. We like hearing about children sacrificing things for their parents. Husbands sacrificing things for their wives. We like... Movies that have scenes of self-sacrifice. Those are the ones that you remember. We like reading books about it. We are drawn to historical anecdotes that talk about it. In the 17th century, in England, the Lord Protector Cromwell sentenced a soldier to death. He said, you will be hung tonight when the curfew bell rings. And that night, when it was time for the bell to ring, something strange happened. There was no sound. The soldier's fiance had climbed up into the bell tower and she gripped the ringer so it couldn't strike. She was brought before the Lord Protector and when he saw her bloody, bruised hands, he felt great compassion for her. And he said, because of your sacrifice, your soldier will live. The curfew bell will not ring tonight. We like hearing stories like that. And if we are a Christian, stories like that even move us perhaps a little bit further because we know very well it is virtually impossible to open this book and scan even an inch of text without seeing some kind of evidence about the great sacrificial way in which God loves us. This morning, 
I could have chosen any number of passages, but I chose one that has a particular personal importance to me. Let me read this very short passage and see if I can explain why it makes me feel the way that I do. This is in 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. And then jumping to verse 18, there is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. There's so much in that tiny little bit of text that shows so much to us about this sacrificial way in which God loves us. We see him loving us by giving us his son. We see the love to us from his son dying for us on the cross so that we could be made children of God. And the very last thing I read is very personally significant to me because my father, who married Julie and myself, he used that verse in our marriage ceremony. He looked at me and he said, Zach, you are capable of loving Julie in a way that will take fear out of her life. And he said, Julie, if you have a genuine fear... Zach's love will be able to remove it. There's something about that that is so appealing to us. God loves you this morning. But you know what? A lot of times in my own life, I know that. But I don't always feel it. Is that true? Sometimes. For some of you, maybe even for some of you this morning, you know God loves you. Why don't you always feel it? I think the answer is very simple. It's true. We do have this, this loving God. And we also, we have an enemy. We have an adversary. You know, if you think about it in not spiritual terms, if you think about it almost in secular terms, there's something kind of intriguing about the idea of having an enemy, having an adversary. You start thinking about it, you start wondering, yeah, it's kind of like that idea behind the, the fight between good and evil. There's something that kind of intrigues us about that. We even maybe imagine, maybe it's the way it was several hundred years ago, when one man might take offense to what another man would say. And he might say something like, I demand satisfaction. And then he would take off his glove and he would throw his glove down in front of the other man, basically challenging him to a duel. And if the other man picked up the glove, he was accepting the challenge. And then the rules would kick in. The two men would choose the place where the duel would take place, fittingly called the field of nobility, chosen by both partners so that neither one would have an advantage. And then they would decide what kinds of weapons would it be. Would it be swords? Or would it be pistols? And if it was pistols, you knew exactly how many steps you had to take before you were allowed to turn and fire your gun at another human being. And there was strategy involved. One famous duelist would say, when I turn around, I never fire first. I wait for him to fire first. And then regardless of the outcome, I put my man down. There's something about that that we kind of like. 
We even like the fact that we can remember some of the names of these famous duelists. Alexander Hamilton. Andrew Jackson. James T. Kirk. Luke Skywalker. Peter Pan. For long, the two enemies looked at one another, Hook shuddering slightly, and Peter with a strange smile upon his face. So, Pan, said Hook at last, this is all you're doing. I, James Cook, came the stern answer, it is all my doing. Proud and insolent youth, said Hook, prepare to meet thy doom. Dark and sinister man, Peter answered, have at thee. We like it. But you know what? The enemy that we face isn't like that at all. There's no rules. There's no nobility. Under the thin surface of everyday life, there is a seething hatred that is just yearning to infect every single aspect of our existence. The enemy we face is the one written about in Scripture saying, Beware your adversary, the lion. Prowls around, seeking someone to devour. What exactly is it that like, that kind of hatred? C.S. Lewis, when he was trying to imagine what could it possibly be that the enemy ultimately wants, was imagining maybe the place where the enemy is, is a place where there is no love, there's no sacrifice. There's no way for one person to sacrifice something for another person. And at that place where the enemy is, instead, this same emotion manifests itself almost as a kind of hunger. And what the enemy wants, ultimately, is to fill up within himself every single human soul on earth. He wants to place inside of himself all of us so that no one can say with any individuality, I, without first saying it through him. What exactly is that like? As I'm thinking about that, I'm reminded of a story. This one day I was having coffee with my father. My father is sitting across the table from me, and I can just tell he's got something on his mind. And finally he says, Zach, I am just, I cannot stop thinking about this childhood memory. I have to tell it to someone. Do with it what you will. Turns out that my father and his younger brother lived in a part of rural Minnesota, they did not live up, grew up in a gun-loving home, but there was a gun in the home, and they were allowed to take that gun out into the woods, and they were allowed to hunt for squirrels because they had an uncle who really liked to eat squirrels, and he was happy to take as many as they could find. And one day, my grandfather, their father, at an auction, bought a slightly newer gun. And because my father was the older one, he was allowed to carry the newer gun, and his younger brother carried the older gun. And my dad said, at that time, there were only two rules regarding the gun. Number one, you were never allowed to point the gun at another person. And number two, you could never assume that the gun was unloaded. And so one day, my father's brother go out into the woods. They hunt all afternoon. They don't find anything. In late afternoon, they're walking back. They're walking back single file. My father's behind his brother, and he's pretending that he's the sergeant, and he's captured this POW, and he's, he's barking orders at his younger brother and basically annoying him. And then from one moment to the next, as they're walking through the woods, my father has the gun here, and he, he just kind of moves the gun forward, and he puts it against the back of his brother's head. 
to annoy him. And his brother was annoyed. He swatted at the gun. And then my father, because he remembered unloading the gun, he thought, I'm just going to, I'm going to click the hammer back here and I'm just going to squeeze the trigger so that he hears the clicking sound because it'll annoy him. And then my dad thought, I've actually already broken one rule. I probably shouldn't do that. He looked down, he opened the gun. It was loaded. My dad, sitting across the table from me, he says, Zach, can you imagine what would have happened if I had pulled that trigger? The life of every single person in my family would have been destroyed. We might not be sitting here right now. I think about that story when I think about the enemy. He wants children to kill children. He wants to take every single thing that bothers you and use it to rip your life apart. He is aching to do it. Oh, he longs for it. What can be done in the face of such naked hate? The passage that I just read makes it so simple and so clear. And if you've been coming to this church for the past few weeks or months, you've heard it said before. It's all about the idea of running to the Lord and abiding in this wonderful waterfall of sacrificial love that he wants to pour on you every single day. He's calling out to you to come to him and receive it. What does that look like? A number of years ago, a woman named Cindy Champanella was traveling with her husband to China to adopt a little four-year-old girl. They arrived to the orphanage. Some of the other older orphans had already learned some English, and they were excited, thinking maybe they were the ones going to be adopted. But the little four-year-old girl they were adopting named Jacqueline, she did not know she was being adopted that day. And when she was told, these are your new parents, Cindy said she began to let out a wail that sounded more like an animal than a human being. They could not get her to stop doing this. And finally, Cindy's husband had to pick up this little girl and put her into the car so they could drive away. And as they're driving away, Cindy said, this little girl just kept wailing this inhuman wail and began repeating these words again and again. Xiao, xiao. Xiao, xiao. Cindy didn't know what she meant. And later through an interpreter, she found out that was actually the nickname of one of the other little boys at the orphanage. It turns out at this orphanage, once an orphan is more than three years old, they are put in charge of a younger child. And this little boy was basically Jacqueline's baby. She had raised him since he was an infant. She potty trained him. It was her job to bring him to the cafeteria to bring him food. She said one of the things she was proudest of was when the other kids would come to torment him, she protected him from them. Cindy didn't know what to do about this. She assumed when they got back to the States, everything would be okay, and Jacqueline would forget about her life in China. And they got back to the States. Jacqueline very quickly began to learn the English language. And Cindy said she never stopped talking about him. She talked about him constantly. She said they would, they would, it was like seeing a very small mother who had had her child ripped away from her. They took her to McDonald's to get her a Happy Meal for the first time, and Jacqueline was excited about the toy and the little plastic bag, and from that point on, whenever she would get a new Happy Meal, she never opened it. She just held it up to the light. And when they asked her why, she said, well, it's because he never had a toy like that. 
And she didn't understand the laws of international adoption, but at night they would be sitting around the dining room table and Jacqueline would say, look, if you just bring him here, you don't even have to give him another chair. You can just let him sit right here in my lap. At night she would say, he doesn't need a bed. He'll just sleep here at my feet. He's used to doing that. Cindy didn't know what to do about this. She began writing some emails to people to ask for help, and she didn't realize this, but these emails began going off to different parts of the country, and news began arriving back to her. This one church group said, we are praying that something could be done for Jacqueline's baby. Another woman said, if you manage to bring him to America, I will buy him clothes until he is 18 years old. Eventually, this news got into the hands of some politicians with more power to cut through the red tape. In less than 18 months after she was adopted, Jacqueline walked back onto that orphanage. She grabbed the hand of her baby, and she walked off. Today, he is adopted by Cindy's sister. They live 20 minutes from each other. They are in the same family. Cindy said, it was like looking at a kind of love that couldn't stop until it got the thing that it wanted. Do you believe that that's how God feels about you right now? Do you believe that he's calling out your name that way ceaselessly? Do you believe it? Apparently it's true. Wonderful thing in the Bible I see. This is the greatest. Jesus loves me. Lord, thank you for the privilege of being your children. And thank you, Lord, that even though we don't understand it, you give us this kind of love ceaselessly every single day. Thank you, Lord that you desire to give that love to people, whether they know it or not. If it's possible, Lord, that there's someone in this room who knows that you love them this way, but maybe they haven't taken that last step, I thank you, Lord, that it's as easy as believing that your death on the cross was for them and simply thanking you for this gift. We love you this morning, Lord, not because we have any special ability in ourselves, but because you first loved us. Thank you, Lord, that we can trust you, and we can take the next steps because of the life that you've given to us. We pray these things in your name.